There is no health without mental health. Greetings and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, Christopher Paul Sabo. As a psychiatrist, I host conversations with thought leaders from psychiatry and beyond, discussing topics that whilst emanating from within the discipline have relevance for society. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Ray, inspiring communities one pharmacy at a time. Cosmetic procedures are predicted to comprise an industry worth 43.9 billion US dollars by 2025. The use of the word industry seems somehow misplaced within the context of medical care, and yet maybe medicine has become an industry like any other. Certainly one speaks of the pharmaceutical industry, healthcare as a commodity. Such procedures comprise a range of surgeries and other interventions that are not purely for cosmetic reasons to improve upon an individual's regular appearance or body shape, but can play a significant role in restoring a return to normality where, for example, reconstruction is required. So what motivates someone to seek out such cosmetic procedures, vanity, perceived need, or actual need? And if one focuses on need, is feeling uncomfortable with one's appearance not legitimate reason enough? To explore these and other issues on today's podcast entitled Body Image and Aesthetic Surgery, I'd like to welcome Dr. Gareth Edwards and Dorianne Wheel. Now, Gareth is a retired plastic surgeon, well-respected for his work, in my estimation, with patients requiring reconstructive surgery following mastectomies related to breast cancer. And uh, Gareth and I were speaking before we started the recording, and I believe he is the first person I've ever spoken to with a heart transplant. So, Gareth, Welcome. And uh, Dorianne, of course, is no stranger to this podcast. It's wonderful to have her back again. She is a clinical psychologist and a well-known broadcaster going under the name of Dr. D. And um, Dori, again, lovely to have you. Great to and be so, there. So both of you, welcome for today's episode. And I think we, we really need to set the scene in, in terms of plastic surgery. Now, certainly plastic surgery is one of the um, – Disciplines within surgery, and in order to be a plastic surgeon in South Africa, you need to successfully complete training and examinations towards obtaining the fellowship of the College of Plastic Surgeons through the Colleges of Medicine of South Africa. So, Gareth, I want to start with you. Could you give a brief explanation of what a plastic surgeon is and why the use of the term plastic? Because I've always found that interesting. So a plastic surgeon is somebody that reconstructs. And that's originally from the war. And the first plastic surgery in South Africa, or the modern uh, era, was sort of around the First and Second World War. Right. Although it's like 2,000 years old, where people put their, fixed their noses if they'd had their noses chopped off for adultery. Oh, for adultery. Yes. <laughs> it was one of the signs. Oh, boy. Um, at the moment, we now talk about cosmetic surgery, um, right. which is a sub subgroup of uh, um Procedures which are not related to function, but more to the aesthetics. And it's a difficult line to get between the two of them. Right. Um, and then we have a super, super spe specialist um, area, which is um, aesthetics. Right. And that is the special specialty of surgery without using surgery. So, in other words, you can use an injection or something like that right. to make the face or generally the face and teeth um, look better. 
Okay, so there's a whole range of surgeries and procedures under the sort of umbrella term yes. of plastic surgery, and I think that's very important. And we'll come to, back to that, I think, in, in a little bit more detail. But I, I, I'd read that uh, the amputated noses were reconstructed through forehead flaps. That's correct. So that's what they were mm. using. And, I mean, this goes back to 800 B.C., apparently yes. in India. Yes, so, I mean, there's a long tradition of reconstruction yes. for functional purposes. Yes. That's but really what we're talking about. And it's also an aesthetic thing. Of course, because you need a nose. <laughs> and you need something that looks like a nose. Yes. But it's amazing that the forehead can be structured to actually replicate. Because it's got so much good blood supply. The blood supply around the forehead is very strong. Okay. Um, so you can take a piece of tissue, model it, and then over a second uh, procedure, Go and model it on the other side of the nose, which means that the, it will literally swap over from being at the top right. to the bottom, and that's how you make the nose. I'm just thinking about uh, pain. 800 BC, I mean, gee whiz, you've well, had your nose morphine, chopped off. Morphine or a vet variant were right. there. Okay. Uh, it was poppy milk. Okay. So, so there, there was some, so there was there some was kind something. of <laughs> because it sounds pretty <laughs> dramatic. But apparently, the the, the 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 ancient Egyptians and Romans also performed plastic mm. surgery to restore defects yes. in uh, eye, you know ears, lips, and enhance the appearance of the skin. Mm. Um, it's quite interesting. The, the Egyptians were incredibly good at surgery, even though they didn't have. Anything better than bronze knives. Okay. Um, Sharpened, I assume. One hopes. <laughs> um, but they did a, a certain, certain things. I mean, we, we also know that for many people, you can do a circumcision right. for a, an aesthetic and also a religious thing. Yes. So this is a, a thing which is common in the West. Right. Um, and then they did other things, for example, like removing eyebrows and, or lines and Yes. Okay, so they make it pretty. Now that's interesting because I mean we would have thought that plastic surgery, as we understand it in a cosmetic sense, in terms of eye, you know lines around the mm. eyes, was is very much a contemporary phenomenon. Mm. But you're telling me it goes back to antiquity. Yes. yes, I mean people did weird things. Most of them died, but because of the infections and so on. But they tried it. Okay, so. The issue of, 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 of this kind of surgery has a, a very long history. Yes. Okay. So coming back to the use of the term plastic, because, uh, again, sort of my reading is that it comes from a Greek word, actually, plastique or something yes. like that. Well, it was first used in, in France to make because uh, the plastique is to mold. Yes, that's exactly, the molding yes. or sculpting. Yes. So I don't know the origin, but right. in, in France, that's when they first started doing that. And we called it plastic, which is incorrect. Yes. Um, and then later we went, okay, well, it's not just that. And then we make it's cosmetic, which it isn't. No. Because it's, it's not more. just cosmetic. And then we talk about aesthetic, which it isn't either because it, it can be functional. Yes. So I think there's, there's this issue of restoration, yes. which I think is important, rejuvenation, yes. as well as Enhancement. And I think that, you know, when one deals with those kind of concepts, but I think that of all the disciplines, there is a lot of art in the surgery. It's kind of, to me, it evokes artistic because you're really working with uh, all of these elements that we're talking about. I think one of the nice things about that for plastic surgeon, for me, as a plastic surgeon, is 
you're actually looking at things more importantly um, in terms of structure. Right. So we use um, measurements and, uh, for example, the, the golden triangle of the nose is something that we try to get on because that will make the, the nose more attractive. Right. So we will remove tissue or add tissue so that we can get a, a perfect nose, and that's based on a triangle. So it's very geometrically yes. correct. Yes, and then you add a bit of flair. Right. <laughs> of course, because you don't want to necessarily create clones no. where everybody's got the same nose. Mm. I mean, you have to also incorporate an element of what makes the individual an individual. You remove, remove the things that are bothersome right. and re- reveal what is attractive. Okay, that's a, that's an interesting. So you're kind of emerging. Yes. Like a flower opening yes, up. Exactly. Okay, so I'm beginning to get it now. That's how it works. <laughs> that's how it works. What's also fascinated me is the technology that enables you to literally sit with the patient and say, right, if we do this, that is what it's going to look yes. like. I mean, is that very much a feature of, of, of the kind of aesthetic surgery or not? It's very controversial. Right. Controversial. Yes. um, Because it also implies that the patient has a right to get the result that they were promised. Right. And we know we're talking about body tissue. Yes. Which doesn't uh, necessarily heal in the way it would, and, and that could be from genetic things or so on. So there are a lot of people that go, I'm going to give you an idea. Uh huh. But it is fuzzy. Yes. So you don't do this perfect photo and then let the patient go, this is what I want. And if they don't get that, they're unhappy because the whole point about that is, is to keep people happy. Yes. And if you're happy, it doesn't necessarily mean that what you were promised is the same thing. So this is a real issue because I think that what is missing is that you are doing an idealized version. Yes. Should all things be equal. But as you say, tissue healing is not necessarily predictable in terms of swelling, distortion, and certainly what it looks like when you've just done the job versus what it becomes weeks down the road is something quite different. And most importantly, five to ten years later. Uh Aha. Let's assume somebody had a facelift and they've now rejuvenated their face and then over time it sags because that is the thing of nature, of nature and aging and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't mean that the procedure was bad or flawed. Right. It just means that it aged. And you can go back and uh, refine that or redo it or so to an extent. But there must be an understanding of what tissue will do over time. Yes. So I think it comes back to something fundamental that we see in so much, expectations. If you have the appropriate expectation, then there is less chance of dissatisfaction. And, of course, we do live in an era of litigation mm. and medico-legal issues. Sure. And I suppose that where you present somebody with a photograph and say, well, this is what you're going to mm. look like, and you don't, mm. that might then imply grounds for some kind of action. Litigation, yes. And we must also talk about complications because this of is course. surgery. Right. Um, and if you operate on somebody, there's going to be a, a, an amount of people that will be unhappy and there could be complications which are catastrophic. Right. Uh, so I think seeing a patient is vital from both sides. The patient must understand what they're going for. It's not I'm just going to have a nose job. Right. It's I'm going to have a rhinoplasty, which could involve 
bone grafts and those kind of things. And also the, the doctor must be able to evaluate the patient and go, is this person ready for a procedure or should I be doing it right. in any way? Okay. Um, and in my practice, we used, I used to go, it's not me, it's you. I'm going to find somebody who can help you. And normally that would be a psychologist yes. to evaluate if this is the right person to see. Okay. So, you know, you're talking about rhinoplasty and, and you mentioned psychologists. So I must bring Dory in there to make a comment. But before we get there, not to forget, these procedures involve anesthetics. Yes. And what I've understood, rightly or wrongly, is that a rhinoplasty can be particularly problematic from an anesthetic yes. point of view and that there is actually, forget the surgical risk, mm-hmm. there is anesthetic risk yes. as well. Would that be correct? Well, if you're blocking somebody's nose yes. and they have a problem in, in terms of removing the, the, the tube at the end right. and they need to re, re ins, reinsert a drain right. or something like that, you don't have a place. So normally you would be able to see. Now you can't because the nose is blocked right. and there might be a little bit of blood and then it's a catastrophe. And so it does happen. It does happen. And I think that, again, you know, when, when, when one is talking benefit, one also needs to put in mm. risk. And I think beyond the aesthetic outcome, mm. we're talking rhinoplasty yes. in our nose job, so to speak, in the sort of common parlance, mm. um, there's an anesthetic risk, yes. which I'm not necessarily sure is always clearly understood. But I think that beyond that, Dory, I'm going to bring you in here briefly just to talk about this whole issue of is this the right procedure for this person at this time? Because there is a psychology. And I think that plastic surgery, in, in, in fact, in, in, in when I was thinking about surgical disciplines, um, which are not necessarily inclined towards <laughs> psychology, but I think plastic surgery, because it's so, we were talking cosmetic, is so personal that I mean the sort of preparation psychologically, I think is very important. Sorry? I think it's very different from other kinds of surgery because other kinds of surgery have a clearly um, health and physiologically related desired outcome and is clearly necessary for functionality. With plastic surgery, it was music to my ears to hear you say, Gareth, that there are times where you would involve a psychologist and there might be times where you might have some doubt as to whether it's the right thing. I think that there's an expectation in some people. If the expectation is physical beauty and enhancement, and that's often associated with youth, and youth is associated with fun and fulfillment it goes down the line Mm -hmm. if i look like this i look young and young people have and all of this but there are those people who where their happiness isn't only related at all to what they look like they use that as sometimes what they perceive as a quick fix Mm -hmm. and that if i have this and if i look like that then I will be happy in the way that you were talking about it. I will, you know, I'll deal with some of the other issues which are too difficult or haven't been manifest, no, they have been manifest, but have been pushed down such that sometimes the emotional carpets look like the Alps because of all the stuff that hasn't been dealt with. And now I've found the way and it's going to be under the knife and under anesthetic. And when I look like this, then this. And if the expectations are I want to look better, this worries me, 
I function better when I look better. There's the fine line between functionality and aesthetics. It says some is functional and some is purely aesthetic. There is the fine line. I feel more confident. I step out more. I function better in my life when I look better. That can be really realistic. And the majority of people actually are very happy with the results in terms of what I understand. Mm. Sometimes what happens is just a little bit more. If I have a little bit more or just one more, Mm. okay, can we just do this again? And then it goes on and on. But there are some people who have expectations, huge expectations about how their lives are going to change. And I think that it's very responsible and, and perceptive if a doctor perceives that it could be that to use a colleague like a psychologist for that sort of assessment. Well, I think it's kind of interesting, Gareth, and I'm going to ask you this because listening to Dory and just hearing what you were saying earlier, it's almost like the plastic surgeon. I'm, I'm going to keep using the term plastic mm-hmm. surgeon because that's what it is. Mm-hmm. But in a sense, certain of the patients who would come to see you, the nature of the procedure and the motivation for the procedure kind of provides you with a window into their mind, into yeah. their psyche. And so of all the surgical disciplines, I would see that the plastic surgeon, as we're discussing now, actually has that unique view. And so you need to be suitably aware and informed to say, well, hang on a sec. We need to go a little bit further. We need to go a little bit deeper. So in your experience, to what extent has that been very important for you? Um, very critical. We know um – that litigation is a huge issue. And beyond that yes. is also what you do to the patient. Yeah. So an example would be somebody who's just got divorced right. and they feel they now have to go out in debt and now they have, must have bigger boobs okay. because that's the trend. Yes. So that to me is a red line. I'd go, Ooh, why don't we wait for six months, mm. see how it's going, and then we do it when you know what size you want. And what you're going to be doing. And if and you need it. Yes, because you might in that time date and date with somebody and then go, oh, they're not fond of, of big boobs and so right. on. You've done this huge procedure. It's right. an operation. Yes. And then you go, well, maybe I should remove them. Mm. And that to me is the problem. Right. In addition to that, we, and, and as Dolly was saying, there are people who just continue and continue and continue. And I had a patient who continued making the boobs bigger and and in my mind they were unattractive and I said I, I can't help you and she fort- fortunately for her went and ch- spoke to other people and she stopped to do it or decided not to do it and came back about two three years later saying my implants have now ruptured wow. and while you're doing them is it appropriate to put in another 50 mils and I thought about that and I spoke to my colleagues and they went it's appropriate because that little bit of volume mm-hmm. will actually fill the, the tissue that has gone away with age. But you're very careful when you do that. That patient was seen for at least three three sessions right. preoperatively. Not about is she mad or anything like that. Yes. Do you understand what you're doing to your body? And I think the popular thing would be if you look at Samantha Fox. Yes, page and, three. Yes. Mm-hmm. So she had all these things. Um, she implant, she put an implant in, grew, uh, yes. they grew, she put more in, and then she had to remove them wow. because there were problems. At that stage, it's no longer just popping in an implant 
Now you take it out and then you have to take that tissue and now you're operating on them and you're removing and now you've got scars. Yes. And, and that sort of moment, you have to predict 10 years in advance going, if I do that in 10 years' time, I'm going to have to reoperate. Mm. Am I telling my patients that? Mm. Do they understand that surgery, which is cosmetic surgery, is expensive? They must put money aside for five years' time when the implant needs to be changed or possibly changed. And those are things that we forget. Yes. So, And I think the most important thing is to make patients read um, appropriate literature. Right. So you're talking about you go and have a nose job? No, you don't. Here's the stuff. It's a rhinoplasty. This is the risk. This is the benefit. And then what is the long term that you might find? If you look at Michael Jackson. He came to mind as you were talking. Yes. Yeah. And um, he's uh, no longer with us, so I can talk about that. I was asked if I could move his nose. Now, quite honestly, I, there was no reason. So you were asked? Yes, um, by, by his team. And I went, no. And the reason was he didn't need anything done. There was an implant there. Yes. But it wasn't about the implant. It was more about the anesthesia. And the, as we realized later, he had a problem with the Prevan. The Prevan, yes. Yeah. And that to me is something that it's all good and well. Oh, I'm going to see this person and they're famous and all this kind of thing. And then you go, well, why am I doing this? Mm. Because I wouldn't do that to any other patient. So why would it do that? And then you say no. Mm. But somebody's going to do it. And we know that because that's why he died. Well, Jane Fonda has been quoted as saying that these procedures are pretty addictive. So maybe you want to jump in there, Dory. No, what I want to say is that I think that – with a really perceptive doctor who doesn't want a court case and who helps the patient realistically assess what's involved in the operation and what might happen in the future goes like, in my opinion, 90% of the way to prevent that. The other 10% is a little bit to do with what is the desired outcome? Mm. See, the desired outcome of big boobs isn't big boobs. Mm. The desired outcome of big boobs is who will I meet? Mm. And if that expectation isn't met, well, I didn't meet anybody. There can be this whole kind of connection like this, that the operation was not successful because I didn't meet anybody. So the real desired outcome is what do you want this for? Mm. It's not only what is it going to look like. And I think that you would be very, very hard-pressed, completely understandably, because it's out of the realm of responsibility and the role for doctors to sit and have that kind of discussion of what do you imagine your life is going to be like after this? And what do you, what do you hope for? And try and see how, if you hope because, you know, you think that you're going to look a lot better, you'll feel better, it will influence your confidence in the way you are. Well, you can say that that partly that could be realistic, but sometimes there are all of these much deeper Mm. reasons for having these sorts of things. And when they're not met, you see the disappointment. And when you see the disappointment, they'll find a way to almost come back to the doctor. Well, I think that's what (laughs) tends to happen because the truth of the matter is the path to happiness is not necessarily found through changing one's external. It's a much deeper journey actually. And that's hard work, whereas surgery is much more immediate and appears to provide an outcome that is desirable. But the truth of the matter is, 
unless you go deeper in and you start to look at what you really want. So this is the real motivation. What are you actually looking for besides the change in physical appearance to get you to where you think you want to be in a way that's going to do it? I, 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 I think that um, what I'm hearing is consumer beware because at the end of the day, what you're looking for may not provide you know, I would what say consumer be aware. Yes. Um, you know, like that. Fair because enough. Because the thing is that if um, you know that you will feel better if this happens and that it's not always the very deep thing. You're happy, but you'll feel better. You're not, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you don't have any real deep unresolved things or you're not suffering from any psychiatric illness or whatever. You just will like it and you'll be happier and that's fine. And I would hope that the majority of people are that as well. But the what you're saying is you can't get enough of what you don't really want. Well, you have to start off and say, look, what am I hungry for? Yeah. What is it that I need? Yes. And if someone offers me um, a million oranges, but I really only crave one apple, I need time, but another one of this and more of the same and more of the same doesn't ever fill the gap. Well, you see, the reason why I'm being so specific about it is because it is a surgical procedure and it carries an anesthetic risk. Yes. And so I think that when one enters into that voluntarily because of something that appears to be exactly what you need, one might forget that what you're actually dealing with, you're going under the knife. You're going under anesthetic. There are risks. There are complications. And it may not be straightforward. So, Gareth, I mean, that's really where I'm coming from is that, you know, Dory says be aware. And I'm also saying beware. And I think this is a risk-benefit analysis for each individual. Completely. And I think at the moment what we're talking about is something like age aging. Uh-huh. We know, for example, that people are now, as they age, considered to be less valuable mm. in Important. their jobs. Yes. Here in society. Talking, yes. So we're looking at somebody who's hitting 60. Right. And they're in me- very good in their job, but now they're perceived as old. Right. Many people in that position would go, if I do something, a minor procedure that makes me look better mm-hmm. to my clients, my fellow workers, etc., that benefit is appropriate but it is not life-changing. So you're not going to do remove the face and redo the face or anything like that. What you're going to do is the eyes are a little bit hooded. Right. So I could remove that skin safely, and it's a reasonable procedure, and you will look better. If you add a little bit of Botox, now you're talking about somebody who really looks brighter. Mm. And if you've got, for example, if you've got too many uh, um, wrinkles, you can put fat in. And at that stage, you're talking about somebody who's looked at the procedure Thought about what they want, mm-hmm. and they're extending their life, their work life, for a period. That to me is important. Then we have an idea, ben- benefit, and risk because people has ha- have thought about that, and surgery for them is functional, although it's cosmetic. Yes. Okay. So now we're getting the real combination. Yes. Where there's, where there's something very practical in terms of what they want to achieve. They're not looking to attract a new partner or to find more comfort in intimate situations. They are saying, listen, this is purely practical. But it is also a reflection on society. Right? Oh, it is. 
But Sorry? I think that there's been some challenge in, in quite recent research. The common perception that's just bought into completely is that kind of come alive in the Pepsi generation. Everyone mm. knows that's the best time of your life. When you're young, fanciful, you know, you, you sort of jeans ripped at the knees, you know, as if by accident. And there's an abandoned kind of quality to your life. Um, that's portrayed all the time in the social media, mm-hmm. everywhere. And that is what the aspiration is. And together with that comes a certain look, of course. But actually, you know, much more hardcore research suggests that a better, more fulfilled time of your, in your life is when you have resolved the so-called, when you've transcended mm. the so-called midlife crisis, where you can kind of say to yourself, you know, what other people think of me is none of my business. I can act a little bit more from the inside out on my own authority. I can take some old passions off a shelf. I'm revaluing connection and relationships. There's been a bit of a priority shift in my life. And, you know, it's more that kind of less frantic feeling and more my time. But that isn't accepted. You can shout that from the hills. It's still the image and the perception that goes with the image in terms of lifestyle. And some of it is a lie. Some of it is a lie. For me, I just go, most of these people that are wearing the ripped jeans are still staying with their parents. And we know that. (laughs) We're looking at a generation which is youthful, and we know the amount of people that are staying with their parents. So it's not a lifestyle. It's something that is funded by unrealistic expectations. Mm. When When you have a life and you're working and you have a car or whatever, suddenly your life is actually more real. And then you make a decision based on a real... Uh, um, expectation and also reality that will come from that. I think the most important thing is to go the Pepsi generation as you speak about it is actually the Pep- Pepsi Ma- Max the diet version the, the no yeah. flavor. Oh boy yeah. no, you, I mean you, you're right it's of kind course. of evolved hey let's not forget Coke <laughs> okay, okay. No, we won't. Sorry. And we're not we promoting either drink. No, we no, are not. No. We have to state that. But I think it? it's, but I, I think Gareth's right. I mean, it's kind of evolved mm. into the zero calories, yes. zero sugar. So in fact, what has it become? Well, that's a question that, that can just hang. But you know, Dory, uh, listening to you talk, I mean, really, we're talking about maturation. We're talking about how people mature and they have an appreciation of a changing body. Of changing abilities, which doesn't necessarily mean you're less valuable or less than. You're just different and you mature into that. I think aging is difficult. And I think aging in a world that we live in today, which is very preoccupied with youth, is, 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 is really problematic. And I think that, um, I came across an article sent to me by a colleague. Um, and the article's title had Deaths of Despair. And one of the issues, that they were referring to was the loss of the three-generation family, where the importance of grandparents – now we're getting into a totally different discussion, but we've gone there from plastic surgery – the loss of the grandparent and the importance of the grandparent in the family structure in terms of what they bring and in terms of how important they are and what has been lost. And then the move away from 
never mind no grandparents, two-parent homes to single-parent homes. And this gradual progression, which I don't know if it's gradual, it's kind of accelerated, to the extent that there's a significant percentage of of, of children growing up in in single-parent homes. And this is not an issue with single-parent homes, but it's an issue with how does that impact future generations and what has changed. And so this loss of the grandparent and the loss of appreciation for age as such an important component in socialization and in societal stability and well-being. Mm-hmm. Coming back to the title of the article, which was Deaths of Despair, looking at increasing suicide and substance abuse in the United States of America. So I know we've gone from plastic surgery, but that's the beauty of this podcast, <laughs> is that is that we have a conversation which can take us all over the place. Dori? See, I think that what you're saying is that, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's it's really a pity and but if you look at that higher rate of suicide and so on and the kind of fear of growing older, you know, I worked now out of the country but with a group of executives actually right. and one of the exercises was write down something on these speech cards that you've never told anyone else mm-hmm. for fear of loss of love or respect. Now, that's heavy. That's vulnerable. That's, that, that, well, it's called vulnerability stretch oh, actually. Okay. That's exactly what it, that it was. Yes. And these cards were read out anonymously and one of them in in fact there were few that alluded to it but one of them was straightforward fear of getting older and i think that it it goes with competence and it goes with my identity has been being good looking Mm. and being beautiful it's a loss of my identity you know i i will i mean you know take a look at me i'm really 85 no, no. The thing is that I don't think that there's there, that there's anything wrong with wanting that. I think that where it becomes a problem is if you think that that's going to absolutely deal with everything and make your life right. But there is a fear of getting older, yeah. and there is a lack of valuing of it. And that role of I can value my grandparents and the and and their influence on me, but I don't want to look like them. Well, you see, I think it's got a lot to do with how you come to see them. And when I use the word see, I don't mean just in the visual sense. I mean, it's how you come to understand what they represent, which then incorporates how they look. And I think that's very important, actually, so that we're not just looking at people as physical objects. We're looking at people in the holistic sense. But I want to just flip it to the other side of plastic surgery, which is the um, reconstructive mm-hmm. plastic surgery because I think that is such an important component and as I was looking at the kind of procedures, cleft lips cleft palates, facial reconstruction because of trauma accidents, burns you know, there are there are so many applications of this kind of surgery that are not necessarily immediately sort of front of mind when you think about it, until you need it and then you're thinking, geez, who's going to do this for me? And then it's the plastic surgeon who's mm-hmm. going to now do reconstructive work. So, mm-hmm. Gareth, maybe you want to comment on the reconstructive aspects of, of plastic surgery. And I'm going to come to something that I think is, is really important. Breast cancer, mastectomies, mm-hmm. reconstruction, and the loss of womanhood mm-hmm. in that. But just getting back to reconstructive surgery as a… Okay, so everything theme. we spoke about now has an origin. Right. So all surgery um, for cosmetic stuff came from somewhere. Right. As we were talking about the nose. Yes. So every procedure that now exists um, has a history in 
a disaster. Okay. And in, in my opinion, a child who has a cleft palate. Right. Or lip. The disaster is that they're not going to be able to function correctly. Mm-hmm. Our job is to try and make them as normal as possible. And that might include a variety of techniques or operations. The same applies to burns. And as technology moves, we get net new things. So when I was training or, or working, we would get new, uh, new skin sort of cultures to, to work on. Right. Now you're going from somebody who had to take skin from their, somewhere else in their body to we're now going to put in a matrix and their skin will then rejuvenate or, or regrow de novo. Okay, so this is you, you, you're not replacing skin with skin. Mm. You're using a technique to yes. enhance exactly. the natural. Yes. That then becomes something that you can use in cosmetic surgery because now you have the technique and you can put in. I think one of the most interesting things is breast cancer. Right. Um, Let's talk I, about that. Yep. I worked with… Uh, um, can I just stop you there? Because I think what you've, what you've highlighted is a very important concept, that the cosmetic and the aesthetic actually comes from the reconstructive. So I think that hier- well, I say hierarchically, but in terms of the, 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 the unfolding, mm. is that the reconstructive is the foundation, yes. actually. And I think for many that is what is lost. So just sorry, so, and, then, yes, and then we'll come back to I just want to say something because I had the privilege when I was growing up as a child of living right next door, Jack Penn. Oh, yes. Now, he was our neighbor, and I, I remember when they started the Benters Clinic. And what stuck with me, even as a child, was I was given um, some letters that his patients had written him in unbelievable gratitude for him giving them their life back. And the power of that, you know, was it just stuck with me. Of you know, he, he dealt with all of this reconstructed um, surgery in the beginning. Right. And it was as deep as saying, you know, without you, I would have not been able to carry on my life. And well, the gratitude was, was just overwhelmingly immense. Well, I'm sure that if you speak to yeah. anybody who's had reconstructive surgery as mm. a consequence of trauma, yeah. where their functioning has been restored, it's life-changing. Yeah. But just correct me if I'm wrong, just having a little bit of a flight of idea here. Wasn't Tara Hospital originally mm. for plastic surgery recovery? <laughs> so, you know, the link between psychiatry <laughs> and plastic surgery <laughs> is actually a lot closer <laughs> than you realize. That a psychiatric facility as it's operating today initially was to do with post-war, post-war plastic surgery yeah. recovery. Here, right here in Johannesburg. Yeah. But let's get back to breast cancer because okay. I think that's something close to your heart, Gareth. Well, if we think about that, one out of eight women will have a breast cancer in their lifetime. Right. Most of them in sort of the 60s and 70s, um, but they are young people as well. Increasingly so mm. from what I'm seeing. For me, when, when I started and I saw the first mastectomy when I was training, the woman that I saw and I was clerking said, I don't want to wake up without a boob. Yes. And I thought that was a reasonable thing, and I spoke to my boss, and he said, well, she's got a very short lifespan. We know that she's got bad disease. And so I went to speak to her, and she said, doesn't matter. 
And I went back to my boss and I said, well, can we do an implant? It's a simple procedure. They've already taken the breast off. We can then just put some muscle over it and do assembling, assemblers of a, of a boob. It went back and forth and eventually my boss said, let's do it. And we did it and she was incredibly happy. And I remember when she died going, I wonder if she's sitting in her grave being happy that she has two boobs. And that to me is why I started thinking about breast cancer. The second thing is if we're talking about function, having a boob is a function. It might not be that for for creating milk, but it is cardinal to your self-image. Yes. That to me is where I got involved because about 15, 20 years ago, people in South Africa were less likely to do a reconstruction immediately. Okay. As the techniques changed, we became more and more au fait with that. And now it would be odd if you didn't have a consult with a plastic surgeon before you have a mastectomy. That you might not have a reconstruction, but you talk about it. Yes. So that the surgeon knows that should you need a re- reconstruction, the plastic surgeon has already told them where it would be could it could or be better for uh, cutting out the skin, skin lines, etc., etc. The scars. Where right. do you place scars? So there's a whole planning procedure yeah. where you're yes. saying, okay, we're going in to do the mastectomy, but we're looking at the individual. Because every breast is different, mm. every individual is different, and we're saying, right, we're planning ahead now, yes. which kind of is a theme, actually, <laughs> of this conversation is planning ahead. Mm. Where we're saying, right, for this individual, they might not want reconstruction mm. immediately or not, but, sh- or not mm. but should it be anticipated, let's have a look at who we're dealing with and what it might entail. Exactly. Right. And that's function. Yes. So if we're going back to is this reconstruction, the point is not to create the perfect boob. Yes, I get it. There is no such thing as a perfect boob. All of them are skew. We know that. They, one is bigger, and, and women always talk about their smaller or their bigger boob. We know that. That's function. Right. Um, if you're redoing that uh, uh, or removing tissue and remaking it, you must look at the other side as well. So we're talking about if we're going to do an impl- implant, would we make the other side smaller, bigger, etc.? And that's planning well in advance. Um, you might have chemo before and then have your reconstruction or you might need to have a reconstruction and then need radiation. All of this is about cancer. So it's not about the perfect boob. Right. It's can we f- have a fun- functional or a semblance of a boob that a woman can go out and the function would be that it is pretty. Yes, the the, bo- the body looks as if it's not lap- lopsided, or right. uh, there's a, a feeling of wholeness. I think that's important. The word wholeness is actually critical because I think, to some extent, maybe that's what it is—that loss of wholeness. Dory, yeah, I just think that you, in your the way that you're talking about now, Gareth, is honouring of mental health. And the way that you use functionality is in its holistic, broadest sense, not just there isn't, may not be a real function if you pass childbirth, you know, you're not mm. going to, but you're Lactate. really, mm. 
encompassing the function of how uh, the functionality of the meaning of that to the person and that's great too well i think it's very important yeah. because at, at at the end of the day i think that you know one has breast cancer but Obviously, there are procedures and there are medical and surgical that are required to, to, to address the problem. But I think it's that return to wholeness, which is so important, actually. And I'm not so sure to what extent it's always discussed, because from an oncologist's point of view or from the surgeon's point of view, they're just thinking about disease. But we're thinking about whole person exactly. and, 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 and restoration. In a functional way, not a, not in a necessarily an aesthetic. I mean, it's got an aesthetic component, mm. but it's much more about the womanhood, personhood, wholeness. And I think in things like breast cancer, one can never have just one person treating a patient. One must have, well, in the team that we worked, there was a psychologist, there was an oncologist, there was a radiation psychologist, myself, the surgeon, and even often the anaesthetist. Because right. remember, patients that have to go for surgery also have other risks. So we would sit with the, the case, team. the mm. case as a team. Mm. Then one of us would then go and speak to the patient. And it could be any of them, mm. whoever the person is that's the most appropriate. Right. And then dev- uh, disseminate everything around right. that. That to me, I think, is how most uh, um, modern uh, uh, mm-hmm. breast cancer uh, units are functioning. Mm-hmm. So basically we have a team approach, mm-hmm. but you don't necessarily have all people talking at the same time yes. to one person. Yes. There's virtually a situation where you have a team leader mm-hmm. who would then, as you say, distill all the information yes. and form the link and almost in a sense be a case manager. That's mm-hmm. correct. So you have that liaison, which I think is so important mm-hmm. because I think it's a time of fear it's a time of uncertainty, and you need someone you can trust, someone you can depend upon, someone you can rely upon, who's going to consistently be there for you to walk you through this. So now we're getting into breast cancer management, which I think is important. Again, I think we're going from plastic surgery into something much more profound. And actually. also from the patient's point of view, when they have that team person who they're building up the relationship with, they know that the collaboration between the doctors has already happened. Mm. And if the, you know, if, if all the members of the team talk to them individually, they might get different and mm. confused perspectives. I think that's really so. important and it's overwhelming. Mm. I think it's always much more important to have a key person who's able to bring it all together, who you can actually liaise with on a consistent basis, yeah. who's getting all that information, mm. but is able to actually bring it together. I think what's interesting interesting for me as a psychiatrist is that I often find myself in that role Mm -hmm. and I'm always concerned about the extent to which contemporary medicine and maybe it's always been that way but of course I don't know anything other than contemporary medicine is the siloed approach this one does this that one does that that one does the next the patient is getting all sorts of information they don't know what to make of it and I so I'm not just talking now about breast cancer Mm -hmm. I'm talking in general general and the psychiatrist so obviously they're stressed they're coming to see me for a different reason and I often find myself having to put all the pieces together Together. to make a picture for the patient Mm -hmm. to say aha okay so this is what is going on but also prof you play another role you listen to the patient well I suppose so you talk to the patient and you give them the information but then you see their reaction you watch their reaction and you know how to elicit the unsaid questions yes. 
and some of the fears that they may be harboring. So I think that it works both ways. No, that's true, Gareth. Yeah. I think it's quite important if you're looking at breast cancer, for example, all relationships, when a patient comes in who's got a breast cancer, every relationship is changed instantly with the diagnosis. That is very important. So we're not talking about somebody who seeking help for mental health. Yes. They are confronted with something and you may be in different uh, stages in your life. My question is always, if a couple comes in, every little crack or whatever is now put on so much pressure that the relationship can break or fracture. How do we stop doing that? And that to me is where it comes in. The mental health expert is the person to go, I need to predict that. And you can't predict that easily unless you go and you speak to the patient. And once again, it might be the mental health expert that does that. Yes. I could do this procedure, I could do that. But in the same time that this is happening, the relationship or the marriage or whatever is going to terminate. Mm. And we need to to prevent the truncation of that. And that is the mental health So look, the common thing was, and I think that it's almost too much of a cliche, maybe there's truth in it, but it's not true all the time, was that if the relationship was inherently, in inverted commas, um, really functional and good, meaning excellent, transparent communication with the sharing of affect, Mm -hmm. the ability to be able to to um, understand things, not not carry an X-ray machine that sees in someone's mind, but wish to understand from the other person's point of view. Those kind of relationships, when put under extreme stress, might further bond the group and bond bond the couple, the couple. and raise the level of functioning even even better. Because it's you and me, babe. You know, we in mm-hmm. us. If the relationship had those cracks that you're talking about before, that kind of stress can definitely serve to, to, to pull them apart. I don't, I don't think that that's always true, but that was the sort of common thing. But the, the knowledge that it could be true serves to have you go into it in that way, individually and maybe together. What is your greatest fear? What do you think that it might do to the relationship? You know, to be able to anticipate. You've been been talking about preparation all yes, the time exactly. for all of this. But I think that, you know, one of the things you're saying here, which is very important, you never know until you're in it. So you can prepare and prepare and prepare, which I think is Im- critically important, but you never know until you kind of ride up against it. And then you are now walking the path, which Mm. is a completely different path to what you were walking. Because let's face it, these diagnoses come out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, boom, you're there. But what you can do even is give the people permission to feel. So you will feel. Yes. You know, you're going to have days where, you know, you're not, you're going to have days where you feel overwhelmed by anger and feelings of unfairness. You're going to have days where you just feel so. So they don't feel crazy when they're going through it. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I could continue this line, but I wanted to segue and flip to plastic surgery, psychiatry, and body image. Because if we get into the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, number five, 
we can go to various diagnostic entities from eating disorders to body dysmorphic disorder yes. to muscle dysmorphia um, to even body dysmorphic-like disorder where there are actual flaws. So there are a range of conditions in psychiatry that just kind of lend themselves to patients seeking out plastic surgery. And the question is to what extent plastic surgeons are aware of this and actually themselves screen out mm-hmm. because – I've come across data which, 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 which says that approximately 8% could be more of patients seeking out plastic surgery actually have an active eating disorder. And there seems to be a link between specific eating disorders and the nature of the plastic surgery. So anorexics tend to go for boob jobs. Bulimics tend to go for liposuction and binge eating disorder tend to go for abdominoplasty. So there's even a categorization of procedure according to the eating disorder. And we're not even getting into body dysmorphic disorder where I think in a sentence it's the pain of perceived ugliness. So in your experience, Gareth, in the closing moments that we have of, of, of today's episode, um, what would you say to that? So if we look at all of those things, I think one of the most important things we must realize that I don't think it's more or less yes. than it was 20 years ago or 100 right. years ago because it's a mental disease. Right. What we miss, what we realize is that people are now able to do something with it. Right. And many of those patients come for surgery mm. and are desperately unhappy afterwards. If you take that patient and you pre-counsel them, yes. their unhappiness goes down from 100% to 15%. Mm. Simple counseling mm. takes, and, and going, this is your expectation. You, you're not going to be that person. You, you will now have an implant and you might have bigger boobs. Mm. That's it. The way in which we put it in is to change your perception of your body. And I'm sure you're more au fait with that. Yes. But one of the things that we were very aware of was um, how you feel in your body. Yes. Um, and there's some literature about uh, people's silhouette and right. the things in their silhouette. And you have to change their perception of what they look like. So you don't send people off to the mirror. You put in a bra, a bra first. Right. You, go, you stay in the bra for five or ten days. Don't look. We put bandages on so you cannot see. Just get used to the feeling of your new breast. Mm. Slowly uh, um, revealing it over time because we know that people uh, um, with dysmorphic body thank you, um, have issues. And a lot of that is neurological. So we know that if you look at – I've had a stroke, so I know – um, perception changes. So mm. if you're looking at somebody's body and there's a tumor or, or stroke in, in an area, they will not be able to see themselves in the right way. So this is, this is very important in terms of the body image distortion. And so the question is always whether it's ethical to intervene where there is an active eating disorder uh, in the way that you are talking mm. about because the basis for the request may be fundamentally flawed in terms of perception. The thinking was that eating disorders are disqualifiers for plastic surgery whilst they are still 
in treatment or have not received treatment. I think that is really the concern, except in the instance where we have reduction mammoplasty for young girls with uh, uh, macromastia, very large breasts, that have contributed to bulimia nervosa, where in fact I have seen therapeutic interventions using plastic surgery for the improvement of the eating disorder symptoms. So I think it's a little bit of a double-edged sword. One has to be um, clear on what is the motivation, because that's what we come back to. What is motivating? My thing was always, as you know, speak to the psychiatrist. Right. If you don't speak to yes. your colleagues, you're going to get into trouble. Yeah. And you should be in trouble right. because you know that the patient has a psychiatrist. If I'm a plastic surgeon, I know nothing about the medication. Yes. The stage of the disease, whatever um, the patient's going through, and therefore I should be speaking to you. And you could go to me, and you have in the past, go, not at the moment. Let's relook in a year. Right. Well, the Sorry? person may have a psychiatrist, but they may need a psychiatrist. You know, they might yes. not have one as yes. yet. Yes. And you talk about whether it's ethical. Yes. You know, to do it. I think that it's, in my opinion, it's almost obligatory if you see it. Yes. You know, to not just go ahead with these mm. things if you see all of these other symptoms. So, you know, they. They're looking for a sol- the, the 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 instance that you said, Chris, with the um, he, with the breasts that caused the bulimia. The eating disorder secondary. Correct. That's exactly right. It's a secondary eating disorder. So yes. if you offer the person the plastic surgery, you would certainly expect and hope that they would be much better. Absolutely right. Yeah. However, there's one thing that I found. Yes. And that is, if I see a patient, and I go. You're not appropriate for this kind of surgery. I think you see your psychiatrist, mm. or psychologist, start with health. They then go to another surgeon. Yeah. And then hide, they hide all of that stuff. And you don't know what person's eating disorder is or, right. or pattern. And I know of patients that have gone from surgeon to surgeon to surgeon and gone, as I've gone along, I've edited the story so that it makes sense. That's fascinating because I, 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 I can see exactly how that, that happened. But now listen, unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our time. And uh, I'm just going to have to close out just mentioning things that I didn't get to. I wanted to speak about cosmetic surgery reality TV, but I didn't get to that because I think that's made a contribution. I wanted to speak about some of the risks of, 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 of plastic surgery. There's been a recent case with Linda Evangelista and uh, a particular cool surgery that she underwent that led to actually the opposite of what she wanted, where you actually reduce adipose tissue, but it causes increased adipose tissue. So I think that these… Jones. Another one. So I think there are a lot of these procedures where the risks are not fully understood and maybe not fully explained. I've also read that the best plastic surgery is plastic surgery that whispers rather than oh, screams. Yes. It should not announce itself. But anyway, I'm going to close out having, <laughs> saying thank you to, to, to Dory and, and, and to Gareth for, for, for joining me to talk about these um, medical interventions because that's what they are. And there are reasons for, reasons against, benefits and risks. And I think that hopefully we've kind of provided a very comprehensive view, not necessarily comprehensive, but given an insight into the consideration. So I'm going to close out with um, two uh, quotes, one from Charles Bukowski, one of my favorite American writers, who said, Beauty is nothing. Beauty won't stay. You don't know how lucky you are to be ugly, because if people like you, 
you know it's for something else. Ah. So that was one quote. And the second one comes from Coco Chanel, a real trailblazer in, in, in my estimation as a, as a fashion designer who said, beauty begins the moment you decide to be yourself. So remember, there is no health without mental health. I am Christopher Paul Sabo, and this is Beyond Madness, in proud association with Adco Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities, one pharmacy at a time.